Hi, this is Ray Barry, and welcome to the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. Glad you could join me on this first episode of Audio Wave Cafe podcast. I was a musician in Coventry for many years and have played in lots of bands. I started out on rhythm guitar, then bass, then into songwriting. Now after a long retirement, podcasting. The Audio Wave Cafe podcast is mainly for musicians, producers and fans from Coventry and surrounding towns. But everyone is welcome to listen in. My guests will include musicians, past and present, and others who have made a contribution in some way to the city's musical heritage. In this episode, my guest is Mark Ryder, a founding member of Scarwaddy, a ska and reggae tribute band. I'll also be talking about streaming your music, is it worth it? And I shine a spotlight on Horizon Studios, long gone but not forgotten iconic recording studio in Coventry. $147 That is the number of individual music streams made in the UK in 2021. Now if you're an artist or band, you'd want a slice of the money that's generated by that eye-watering figure. But in October 2021, the Digital Media and Sport Committee report stated that the music streaming model is in need of a complete reset, as there are pitiful returns from the current system, that if you assign to a label, the streaming service say Spotify, Tidal or Apple Music, pays out over 40% for the record company and the artist 16%. I will give a figure for one download. It's insignificant. Now these are approximate figures. Let's say one of your songs was downloaded a thousand times. You just might receive £3 in royalties. Nar Rogers said at the committee meeting that a music stream should be treated as a licence, not a sale. A licence gives the artist 50% of royalties for a song, whereas a sale gives the artist between 18 and 30%. Obviously for a record company, a stream is classified as a sale, and of course it maximises their profits. Artists have always been screwed. It's a fact of life in the music business. Everyone wants a piece of you, which you would accept if you actually got a fair share, and 16% ain't it. Jamie Collison, head of marketing at Domino Records in London, has said that streaming has saved the music business, arguing that it was Spotify that created a new business model for the music industry. For new emerging artists, there is a choice between no money and streaming money. Collison stated that artists who have embraced streaming and figured out how to make it work for them have thrived. Well, he would say that. Or does he have a point? I guess he means... Don't just post your songs on Spotify and hope for the best. So if you are an independent artist or band, and you produce your own recordings and get them distributed, then surely you can start planning to move out of your parents' place. Well, not yet. The good thing is, distributors do not own the rights to your song. It's still yours. I wanted to give you names of good distributors, those that work with the artists and provide excellent customer service, and up front with their charges. But I've read good and bad reviews about all of them, although CD Baby, DistroKid and Truecore seem better than many. If your band has a good distributor that cares, let me know. Or if your band are actually making money, then I'll have you on as a guest on a podcast. If you're making lots of money, heck, I'll even be your roadie.
Today I have with me Mark Ryder, guitarist and founder of Scarbody, a ska and reggae tribute band. Mark, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's very nice to be invited to uh, come and have a little talk with you and possibly chew over the fat about the old times as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd always thought of you as a rock and blues guitarist. In fact, more than 40 years ago, together with Roger Strong, we formed our own rock band playing original material. So, what brought about the change in genre when you put on a black suit and pork pie hat and started playing ska and reggae? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I think, you know, if you go back to the time when we started and when I was a, a young man and a, a guitarist just starting off, I was, um, I guess like everybody else, influenced by the music of the time. Um, you know, I was born in 1952, so I was um, influenced by the music of the 40s and certainly by the music of the 50s, uh, you know, which is a schoolboy. I was listening to the music of the 50s and then obviously came the 60s. I think everybody at that time was uh, influenced by rock and roll and by the blues and by jazz and the big bands and things like that. And so I, I wouldn't be any different to anybody else. But um, I've always been interested in uh, offbeats uh, as a guitarist. If you remember in Reflex, there was quite a few songs that I was playing offbeat guitar in there. Prior to uh, joining Reflex, I was actually running reggae discos at the Red House and things like that and and, um, and putting reggae music on in between the break when the, when the band wasn't playing. So it, it, it's not something that is like a, I've taken on as a new thing. It, I've, been, I've been interested in ska and reggae for a long time. What basically happened with the Scarbody is like I filmed it with Lee Ross and we, we were looking for an angle to where um, a small act, a duo, could be um, have a, like a bit of a commercial edge over um, what everybody else was doing. Uh, so we decided to concentrate uh, on one of the things we concentrate on was doing a bit of Scar and Reggae. Like basically the... Um, I consider it a bit of the music of the area, for you know, because I'm a, a Coventry lad, so um, I'm obviously influenced by that as well. I've seen videos of Scarwaddy as a two-piece and as a four- or five-piece band. What's all that about? We wanted to be um, slightly different to what normally you might see in a pub or a club on a Saturday night uh, and have a little bit of a, a commercial edge. But like... Um, Nowadays, to have a, a band, like a seven or eight-piece band, is most places can't, either can't afford it or they can't fit it in. Like um, certainly a little pub or some of the smaller working men clubs and something like that, they just don't have room for a big act in there. Even though people like to see a, a stage full of musicians, it, it, they don't necessarily able to afford to, you know, to pay to have them there because I mean, like cost of fuel and that sort of thing. It costs money to keep a big band on the road, um, whereas a, a duo is a, it's a lot more affordable to do it for the for the artists themselves. You wrote "Rude Boys," a song about gang culture. What was the motivation for that? Well, the um, "Rude Boys." Is like it's used in two ways. Sometimes it's um, it certainly has been used as an insult. Um, the rude boys is like comes from uh, the Jamaican 
culture and that was used in, in some ways like an insult to um, poor, uneducated, um, rough and ready people. That, 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 well, that's what they... That's what they were being called. They were being called these rude boys, and meaning it is somewhat as an insult. And the reaction to that was from people because just because people are a little bit poorer and cultured, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're lacking in ethics and morals. And um, so they reacted in, in, in a way by sort of rejoicing in the name. And um, but they would go out and they'd dress up smart. Say so even though that uh, you know I haven't got very much money, I can be have clean clothes and I can be clean shaved and uh, you know I can try and look nice for a Saturday night. And uh, you know even though they were working hard all week and possibly long hours, they would when they went out they'd make, make an effort to look smart. And that was um, one aspect of the the rude boys. Because the other rude boys is is when the, when it was justifiably used as an insult, um, because uh, some people they um, they rejoice in uh, gang culture, knives and guns and drugs uh, and things like in and out of prison, and uh, they think this is a good way of life, and uh, and that continues to today with um, with drill music and things like that, which. Um, where the gang culture, gangsterism is celebrated, and it, it really is not something to celebrate because it's because um, it's bullying. Will you be writing more songs for the band? I may get in the mood to do it. Um, sometimes you know, like uh, you, you feel as though that um, there's things you want to say. Uh, I think uh, COVID's got in the way a little bit of my songwriting, and like um, we've all had to uh, struggle through. Um, Possibly a little bit difficult times for for a lot of people, and um, I think um, I'm trying to like bounce back after um, what has been really quite a difficult couple of years for a lot of people. You brought in Natasha to replace your previous singer. She must have altered the dynamics of the band. Well, yes. Um, what what happened is um, there was um, problems with the previous singer and. Um, the first singer of Scarlet, he, he was very kind and uh, he came out of retirement, uh, even though he got some poor health. And um, he helped me um, get things going again. And we did some recording with uh, Roger at uh, Coventry. Uh, I did some videos uh, with him and um, we got things going back up. But he, he, he couldn't stay with the act, so I was looking for the another singer and he gave me plenty of notice that he like he do it he couldn't really do any more than a Saturday night because of his health so uh, I was looking for a singer and uh, I looked for a few and uh, I came and, and met up with Natasha and she seemed I thought to myself that's an interesting idea why not have um, a female uh, to do the singing in the act, and um, I thought that might be a, a, appealing to the public as well. You know, to have something a little bit more unusual than a, a couple of blokes. <laughs> yeah, you have an album out called Tracking Back. Can you tell me more about it? Well, the act, um, being a very small act, is uh, got a, um, basically just me playing guitar, uh, and so. 
we have to, to try and create a, a full sound, use uh, click tracks or backing tracks to um, complete the lineup so that you've got the drums and uh, bass guitar and things like that. So uh, make a full sound for um, you, you know the audience to hear. So it was basically, it was an album that which um, we did uh, using the um, the backing tracks and click tracks, uh, but like, uh, but then to do, put a bit better quality on there to make it a bit more studio-ish um, by actually putting studio recordings on, on, on with it. So that's why it got called uh, Tracking Back. Post-COVID restrictions, how easy have you found getting gigs? COVID really knocked the, uh, the act back. Um, we had, I think, near enough 80 gigs on the, uh, on the books when everything had to stop. Um, government said, and of course, uh, all, all the places we were playing at, we, you know, no, they couldn't have live music on, couldn't, couldn't even be open. Um, so we lost a lot, uh, which, um, you know, I think the app would be in a different place now if that COVID hadn't happened. Because then it carried on; it even got worse for us. Because um, after about twelve months, if you remember correctly, the government um, lifted the restrictions and said that uh, you know that, that venues could start having acts on again, and the books started to fill up. And we got about forty on the books, and uh, then the government said. Whoa, we better stop this back then, like we lost the funder, I lost another 40 gigs. <laughs> yeah, it, it does make me think sometimes. I wonder where, uh, wonder where Scarwoody would be, uh, you know, how, I think the back, the acts have been badly damaged by, and obviously not the only one. Um, it's a bit, been the same, same for all the, all the other acts, but I'm sure we would have been further forward, um, in what direction, I don't know, but, um, Certainly, um, COVID's badly affected not just Scarwoody, but um, lots of other acts as well. Yeah, of course. Any advice for a band just starting up? From my experience, I know that um, a lot of bands, they'll, they'll form, they'll get together and they'll get all enthusiastic and doing all sorts and put a lot of hard work into it. And then one way or another, they will fizzle out after about 18 months or two years or something like that. I know that the usual reason for that is somebody thinking they're more important than, um, than everybody else in the band. Egos come into it and all sorts of things. And that's one of the major reasons that um, bands break up. Remember, they break up for other reasons, you know, like... Um, that uh, people's priorities are not somebody might get ill or something like that, and uh, or the, the girlfriend's ill, or you, you know that they're going to get married or something like that, and they put his uh, priority over the music. It's a band of musicians, and it should be a band of friends and a band of workmates. You all work together, and like in the workplace, you should be um, working to strengths like everybody's got strengths and everybody's got weaknesses and if you've got say three or four people in a an act understand that people have got uh, weaknesses and try and help them with them uh, try and cover them up if you can and work to their strengths uh, so like um, it's a band is not about one person 
you know, you're only one person in the three or four, so you, you, you've got to act as a, a team. What plan for Scarwaddy in 2022? Like a lot of other acts, we're re- recovering from what's happened to uh, the music business over the last couple of years. I mean, the venues are um, uh, recovering as well. I mean, a lot of them have gone out of business. A lot of acts have just packed up and said, "Enough, we can't, we can't do it anymore." You know, we can't sustain the enthusiasm for um, performing when we can't perform. And they've just gone by the wayside. So it's to recover from um, the couple of years that have been lost. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. I will. I like performing, and I will continue to perform as long as I can. I'll try and help the band uh, advance to the future. I'm working on new bits and pieces for maybe one or two new covers that we might do, and. Uh, you never know, we might do a little bit more recording if uh, if things go well. But like uh, getting back to where we were before COVID started was uh, is going to be the first priority, I think. Right. Mark, I wish you and your band all the best. Many thanks for being my guest. That was Mark Ryder of Scarwaddy. Great guy. Thanks very much for the interview. spotlight in this episode is on the iconic Horizon Studios in Coventry. Barry Thomas the only invited me over to visit Horizon Recording Studios a couple of months before the official opening day. An artist was carefully painting a small section of what would become a big wall mural in the reception area and stairwell. I think it was a Lanchester Poly student. I wish you could find his name, as what he eventually created helped to give the studios an individual identity so different to most other recording studios. On walking into the control room, I was greeted by a mass of multicoloured cables emanating from a partially built custom mixing desk. A few weeks later, I heard that the guy building it quit one day and never returned. The part-completed desk was replaced by a ready-made desk soon after. I think the studio was open for business sometime in 77. I recall the recording rates per hour were very reasonable for an 8-track recording studio. Previously, I used to record over at Burr Studios in Snitterfield, but that's another story. So Coventry now had a brand new recording studio, and in the years to come, many musicians would climb those treacherous stairs with amps, speakers, keyboards and guitars. I remember in early 79, I was recording a couple of my songs with a bunch of mates, when the engineer asked us to listen to a track by a band called The Specials. After he played the track, I honestly didn't think that much of it, and told him so. But what the hell did I know? That track turned out to be Gangsters, and later that year he rose to number 6 in the singles charts and kick-started the two-tone phenomenon, which helped put Horizon Studios on the national map. But so did Roger Lomas, who produced many tracks at Horizon that became hits. He made an important contribution to the Horizon story. Over more than 25 years, many artists and bands and owners passed through those doors until it closed for good in 2003. Then the entire building was demolished. Was it daft to build a recording studio at the top of a multi-storey building, with no lifts next to a train station. Well, yeah, but it worked. We all put up with it. Horizon Studios was unique, and the engineers and the musicians made it a fun, creative place to record. And I, for one, loved it. If you have any pictures of you or your band or the studios, Mark Ryder runs the Horizon Studios Facebook page. Drop him a line. He'd love to hear from you. 
Coming up is a song written by Mark Ryder and released by his band Scarwaddy in 2019, engineered by Marius Zazulski, lead vocal Natasha Marie, drums Evan Anderson, keys Marius Zazulski, and guitar and keys Mark Ryder. Rude Boys. That's the first episode of the Audio Wave Cafe podcast wrapped up, and with more to come. I'd like to hear from unsigned bands and artists in whatever genre to send me one or two of your demos in MP3 format to 
audiowavecafe at gmail.com. Now they could have been recorded yesterday or 40 years ago. Include where the demo was recorded, who played what, and I'll see about getting your original music played on a podcast. Because I believe there are many great songs and performances out there just waiting to be heard. In episode 2, my guest will be Ruth Charrington. We'll be talking about her book, The Dirty Stophouse Guide to 1970s Coventry. And I'll be shining a spotlight on the Rock House, Coventry's much-missed live music and dance venue. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Ryder of Scarwaddy. And uh, that's it. I'm done. Till next time.